books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Sometimes it only takes a spark to start a fire. And for writer and activist Farah Alexander, the small flicker of an idea that eventually became her first book was her January 2017 participation in the historic Women's March in Washington, D.C. She encountered so many women who were emboldened to make change but weren't sure how to channel their energies. Farah wrote her book titled Raising the Resistance, A Mother's Guide to Practical Activism, which gives suggestions on how to be a leader in your life and a model for change for your children. But the book is also witty and whimsical, which makes it accessible to a wide audience. Farah has been a journalist and freelance writer whose articles have appeared in the Huffington Post, Scary Mommy, and BuzzFeed. Her work focuses on feminism, social justice, parenting, and politics. She is also a Jeremiah Fellow with Bend the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice which aims to combat white supremacy and mobilize communities for social change. In this episode, Farah talks to us about how even as a child she was drawn to books with strong female characters like Amelia Bedelia, how she wants to make the ideas of feminism less academic and more accessible, why she feels essay writing can be a powerful tool for women to share their stories, and which item of her political memorabilia collection is her most cherished. Amy and I are having really no shortage of interesting guests to invite on the show. And one of those is Farah Alexander, author and activist. Farah, we're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I first saw information about you on the Louisville Book Festival site. You were a guest to the Louisville Book Festival, and I was intrigued by you and your story. First of all, now you are in the Louisville area, but you're actually over on the Indiana side. Is that correct? I am. I kind of feel like I have dual state citizenship because I'm very, very (laughs) close to Louisville, but I do live in Indiana. So tell us a little bit about what your reading life was like as a kid. Were there certain kind Mm -hmm. of books that you gravitated to? Oh, goodness. Well, as a child, I just loved to read and I would pretty much read anything. But even as a small child, I really liked books with strong female leads, even if that was like Amelia Bedelia or someone like that. And I liked fun books. So when you became a teenager, did your reading taste change and then on into an adult? It did. I think when I was a teenager, I started focusing more on some of the classic books. And I also became a little bit more interested in journalism. And I really enjoyed like Hunter S. Thompson, things like that, that were just really immersive and eclectic and interesting. You're a writer and you've published Mm -hmm. essays in the Leo, which is a Louisville publication and on Scary Mommy and BuzzFeed and HuffPost website. So you've had a lot of your essays out there. What 
led you to start writing and, and publishing those? Well, I have a background in journalism and I've previously written more news features and things like that, but I always wanted to write more opinion editorials and just have the freedom a little bit more with my writing. I felt like with a lot of news writing, it was almost like filling in mad libs. There was just a formula <laughs> that you had to follow. And in my opinion, I didn't feel like I could really express myself or demonstrate a lot of creativity. And so as an adult, I think I just found myself more. I had more opinions and I kind of enjoyed expressing myself in that way as things changed in the world and I had more opinions about that. I wanted to write about it because I've always written my entire life and I found that people resonated with it. In college, was journalism your major? Yeah, I studied uh, journalism and political science. Okay. When you said you worked in journalism, was it like newspaper or? Yeah. So originally I interned for Leo Weekly and then I worked for a local paper on the Indiana side and and did a lot of freelancing. I feel like I've been a writer my entire life. It's just something that I've always done. I've always wanted to do and writing a book has absolutely been my lifelong dream. The idea of essays. You talk about the creativity with them. And I think a lot of times, maybe the way kids are taught to write essays, because I'm a writing teacher, mm-hmm. and sometimes they're like the news stories, you said they're kind of formulaic. And I think that's what we've been taught to think of essays as being. Mm-hmm. It's like you have your intro paragraph, and then you give your first reason and your second mm-hmm. reason. And so I think it's interesting that you talk about the creativity mm-hmm. of essay writing. Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of view it as something that there is quite a bit of freedom. I always enjoyed essayists like David Sedaris, who I think are extremely creative. So I don't know. Maybe it's very freeing compared to news writing <laughs> to me, but it's not quite as rigid. Yeah, I agree. Maybe there's a difference between what real people do in publishing in terms of essays and the way students are like the building blocks of teaching essays. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the disconnect for some people. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't have any background in teaching, but I would love to see more people write about their own experiences and write more opinion pieces because I think so many people have just really diverse backgrounds and perspectives that are so needed right now. And I did some work with a local organization called Whitney Strong that was founded by a gun violence survivor. And in that, I edited a bunch of pieces from gun violence survivors, and they were just absolutely incredible. And I really enjoyed reading their stories. And for so many of them, they had never had that experience. And I'm like, gosh, we need more of this. Right. So I, I would love to see more people explore writing and telling their own stories and sharing their truths. I think that would be incredible. So your debut book came out in August of 2020. It's called Raising the Resistance, A Mother's Guide to Practical Activism. So can you give our listeners just a little summary of what your book is about? 
Sure. So my book, it is pretty much just a practical guide for mothers and in general women and even just parents who are interested in political activism and either want to deepen their involvement and challenge themselves or they were getting involved for the first time and they just really need guidance on how to start. Was there something that motivated your writing of this book at this time? Yeah, so I think that a lot of times I talk about the election of 2016 because that was a huge moment. And I even talk a lot about after 2016 and before 2016, like it's AD. But I think that that was a huge moment for so many people. And I actually hopped on a bus from Louisville to Washington, D.C. for the first Women's March. And I saw just so many women mobilized and taking a stand, so many of them for the first time in their lives. So they just didn't quite know where to go from here. Like they were really, really passionate and involved and that's awesome, but they just didn't know what to do next. And so I wanted to write for those people and just give them a little bit of guidance and try to empower them to keep pushing forward. So I'm curious with going to DC, when you were writing this, this was just something that, you know, you already had it there and you were ready to birth it or or did you have to do some research too? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I had to learn a lot and I'm still learning and constantly learning for this book and some of the topics that I discussed. I did a lot of reading and just learning more. Some organizing training with other activists, that has been really helpful. But more than anything, just reading other people's work. So why do you think that mothers and women more generally are specifically poised to be effective in social justice at this moment? Well, I think that mothers and women have a tremendous amount of power that is too often just not realized. Women are the largest voting bloc in the United States. Also, mothers have tremendous power in raising the next generation. Whenever we feel daunted by what's happening in the world currently, we can always look to the future and we have all the power in what that future looks like. So your book is about the intersection of motherhood and political activism. And I read your book last week and I anticipated that I would enjoy it, but that it wouldn't really pertain to me directly because my children are older. They're young adults now. But actually, I would say even though there are parts of the book that are about how to sort of instill a sense of social justice into your life as a mother with young kids. It's more about how to become a leader in your own life, regardless of whether you have kids or not. So when you sat down to write this book, did you have an audience in mind? What what was your thought process with that? Yeah, well, I tried to be as accessible and inclusive as possible in writing this book. I thought that was really important. You know, sometimes in my experience, some feminist work is really cerebral and like more towards a academic audience. And I wanted this book to be something that really all women, but definitely mothers and really men as well, could pick up and read and understand and get something out of it. 
So I wanted to focus on mothers because there, in my experience, has not been a book like this for mothers in the market. It seemed like in the parenting genre, there's a lot about potty training and pregnancy and things like that, but there's not a lot for mom forging her own identity. So I really wanted to explore that. I mean, I know for myself, I think that when I became a mom, and I think this is normal, you sort of lose yourself in motherhood. The focus, so much of what you do is to take care of your children. But I know for myself, at some point I was like, yo, wait a minute. <laughs> like I'm still a person. I still have my own interests and my own goals. And I, I think that's important for women to realize, you know, maybe not the second after they delivered the baby, but it's like, you're still the person that you were before you became a mom. Yes. And that's hard. Yeah. You know, we're under so much pressure and raising children is a huge responsibility it's very taxing. It's a lot of work. So it's difficult to also take on the work of just exploring your own identity and what you want. One of the big takeaways for me from the book is that it's easy to be overwhelmed by the things that we feel need to change. And I've had this experience right after 2016 as well, you almost feel like you get swallowed up by it and you don't know how to narrow it down. Because if you try to do too much or if you spread yourself too thin, then you end up maybe doing nothing. So talk about that concept a little bit. And did you have an experience that sort of crystallized that for you? Yeah, for me, it was just my own personal experience of feeling extremely overwhelmed by all the problems in the world, basically. I think I'm a pretty empathetic person and I care just a lot about people and anyone who is suffering in some way. So if someone lobbies for a cause, I'm pretty much right there with them and I want to support them and help them in any way I can. But just like you said, in that you can't help everyone. You can't lobby for every possible cause effectively. So I also found when I was watching the news, especially over the past couple of years, and especially this year, I would get extremely overwhelmed by all the bad news specifically. And it would just really affect my mental health and how I was feeling. And I wasn't making any kind of a positive change. So how I dealt with that was to just really think about the issues that I cared about the most and to focus on those issues so I could be effective. And so that's what I wrote about in one chapter of the book. I suggested that you just pick three things that are extremely important to you and are your key issues that you're going to go to bat for. And so in doing that, you can be effective and not be so fatigued by everything else that's going on in the world. Yeah, that to me was one of my favorite parts of the book, because that's something I definitely struggled with. I mean, I know right after the 2016 election, I was going to rallies and I was Mm -hmm. writing all of my Congress people. You know, I had gone to the capital of Kentucky to lobby for certain things, which is all awesome. But I felt like I had like this big burst where I have got to do something. But then sometimes when you don't see an immediate result, you're like, 
well, what did I do all that for? There were too many things to be upset about, too many things I could do. And then sometimes you fall back into complacency. So I liked your idea of narrowing it down to just a couple things. The thing that just occurred to me with listening to both of you is that in a lot of ways, the idea of political activism coincides really nicely with motherhood because I know for myself, I was a really amazing 100% mom the day I brought my daughter home from the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then as I've had more children and the reality of, oh, I can't control this, or this is what I can control. I've sort of decided as a parent, okay, what are my top three things that I am really like, these are the hills I'm going to die on. And I think just as a parent, your expectation of what you are going to be able to control and change looks very different from the reality of what you're going to be able to control and change in your children because they have their own personalities and needs and desires. And I guess it seems like there's a natural fit for those two things, especially if your kids are older and you've seen that happen in mothering, then you can go, oh, I see how this works for political activism too. Right. That's so interesting. I love that you said that. I've never thought about that before, but I think you're exactly right. So your book talks about Peggy McIntosh's concept of the invisible backpack. Can you explain what that backpack concept is? Sure. So the concept is basically that everyone has different tools that help them in life. And some people don't have those same tools. And so Those tools are just basically a metaphor for privilege. So people who have a lot of privilege, let's say white, cis, wealthy men in particular, have a lot of tools that help them in life. So they have, let's say, lots of things in their backpack, in a very nice backpack. And then you may have marginalized people and Black people who live in poverty and have other struggles along with that. And they have a grocery sack that is empty or just has a toothbrush in it. They don't have as many tools. And so we all, as we're trudging through life and trying to accomplish things, people with more privilege, it's just simply a little bit easier for them. And when people don't have as much privilege, they don't have those tools. And it's more difficult for them. Politics has gotten so vicious, I guess. That's probably a good word for it. That people are like, I'm not into politics. I want to be apolitical. But what you have in your backpack is going to affect your politics, right? I mean, explain that a little bit. Absolutely. Well, you know, to simply say that I don't like politics, or I'm not going to make political statements, I'm not going to be political, that is an exercise of tremendous privilege. People who don't have as much privilege absolutely do not have that option, because their existence is political. You know, just to be a woman in the United States, your existence is political. Your reproductive justice is extremely politicized. So, yeah, I just think that the personal is political because even if you don't engage in politics, your entire life is surrounded by politics. The bank that manages your mortgage 
is engaged in politics. Your boss is engaged in politics. Everyone who has some sort of power or control over you is engaged in politics. And it's just not to your advantage to not also be engaged in politics. Right. Well, it's. I think there's a certain amount of lack of awareness. Like, for example, I know for myself, over the years, as I had babies, the cost mm-hmm. to me and my husband of yeah. each of our babies was drastically different, right? Yeah. Depending on, you know, like we had our one daughter under one insurance and then we had our son under another insurance and then we had our mm-hmm. third child under another insurance. This is nuts, you know? <laughs> and so that policy, even if you're not thinking politics like whether you're Republican or Democrat, but thinking of policy, that impacts you. And so I think sometimes people, when you say politics, they think Mm -hmm. vicious name calling, but really it's, it's policymaking, right? Really? Yeah. Another part of my book, I talked a little bit about political representation and my extremely failed campaign of when I ran for a very small political office. But that gave me a good opportunity to introduce my kids to politics because the office that I was running for was very small and focused on things like community resources. And so I could explain it to my kids like, hey, do you see those swings that are broken in the park? I could fix those swings if I get this political office because behind those broken swings is a system of bureaucracy that I am trying to enter. And that's kind of how everything works around you. Even though the topic of your book is a fairly serious one, the tone of your book is funny and whimsical. And I think it made it a very engaging read. Was this an intentional thing or is that just who you are? And think both. Uh, it was definitely an intentional thing because that is who I am. And that's how I usually speak. And that's how I write. And I wanted to incorporate that into the book. But I think that's a pretty common misconception about this book and the work in general. You know, I, in what I do, it's involved in a lot of things like combating white supremacy and things that are really, really big and heavy. And people think that I am a very serious, angry person. And that's just simply not who I am at all. I have lots and lots of joy in my life. And I'm passionate about this work because I think that we can do a little bit better than this. And I just want to bend the arc a little bit closer towards moral justice in the world. But yeah, that's just who I am. I am a little snarky and funny, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. And I actually think it helps to make the subject more approachable. I hope so. So were your parents engaged in social activism when you were growing up? Or is that something that you were exposed to as a, as a young person? Absolutely not. Not at all. Really? Yeah. No. (laughs) I feel like it was just inherent for me that I always had a 
passion for justice. And my parents are wonderful, wonderful people. And I have a great relationship with them. And we talk a lot about politics and activism now. But the very first time I had talked about politics to my parents was when I was 16 and I was campaigning for John Kerry and I wanted Mm -hmm. to put a sign in the yard. (laughs) And that was really the first time we ever talked about politics because my parents were the kind of people who were always engaged in democracy. They always voted, but they also didn't really like to create waves. So they Mm -hmm. didn't talk about politics publicly or talk about who they voted for and things like that weren't, that just wasn't them. You talk in your book about small changes making a big impact. And I think that showing children that voting is just something that you do, like brushing Mm -hmm. your teeth or, you know, making your bed is really important. I mean, my parents weren't social activists in any sense of the word, but they always voted. And I would go with them a lot of times to go to the polls and vote with them. And I did the same thing with my kids, often took them with me when I was voting. And so I think making it seem like it's just something completely normal, just something you do and not really even something that you think about not doing is one of the biggest things that you can do as a parent to instill that. Well, and I think too, Politics isn't just like big federal level politics or international politics. I know for myself, I saw my parents, my dad was on the school board and my mom was on the the PTA and and I was brought up Catholic. So they did stuff Mm -hmm. in affiliation with the church. So I think that there's, what's the saying? Think global, act local, right? So I think that there's a certain amount of modeling that being involved in things where you are going to feel an immediate impact, whether that's the yeah. school board or something related to your children's school or something in your community association, or maybe your apartment has a community board or whatever. You know, there's lots of different ways that you can be political and be active mm-hmm. in your community. It may not necessarily be on the presidential level or on the absolutely. senatorial level, but it's still very much activism in the community. Yes. Carrie, you're the perfect poster child for that with the (laughs) dress code issue at your daughter's high school. Yes, that was me. That was the person who made the news. (laughs) So your book talks about dress codes. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts about dress codes and kind of how you dealt with that in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think dress codes, that's an incredibly important issue and it takes parents to change that. But I think a lot of the dress codes are focused on girls generally and the distraction that they cause simply by existing, really. Things like spaghetti straps and shorts being a certain length and things like that, I just think are very silly. These are children. And a lot of times these dress codes are very early in their education. Also, I think it's really, really disturbing to promote a dress code that young girls may distract their male peers and their male teachers. And it's just wrong. The other part of that is that there's dress codes that are racist that include just policing black hairstyles that are natural. And 
that isn't right and doesn't make any sense to me. But I do think that it takes parents to take a stand and talk to their schools, talk to their school boards and get these things changed. So I commend you. I think that's absolutely incredible to take a stand. What happened with me, you know, being on the news, I agreed to be on the news, but it perfectly happy when that was all over and I could go back under my rock and not be getting phone calls all the time. But it made a huge difference in my daughter's life. And And I mean that in two ways. Number one, it resulted in the dress code being changed by a group of parents and students and teachers and administrators all working together for that to change, Mm -hmm. which was awesome. But it made a difference for my daughter because she saw what doing something that was not necessarily something that I wanted to do and staying calm, but saying what needed to be said was empowering. So that empowered her, I think. Even though it was a lot of headache and it was stressful for me, it was worth it for her. Wow. How incredibly brave and what an incredible example to set for your daughter. That's just so inspiring. Kind of brings tears to my eyes. (laughs) 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 Well, the the funny thing is now I'm like, y'all don't want me to go on the news. Y'all know I will do it. (laughs) Absolutely. And they know. They know. They don't want to mess with you. (laughs) So you have this really great passage. It's one of my favorite in the book where you talk about as a young girl, you would climb trees so you could see around your neighborhood to spy on anything going on and then write it in this little notebook like Harry the Spy. And then you type it up on this old typewriter that your grandfather found. And you said you always knew you wanted to write. So your debut book has been nonfiction. Is that what you always envisioned? Or did this topic just sort of fall into your lap because you're so passionate about it? I do think it kind of fell into my lap because I'm so passionate about it. But I I have always written, but I have not written fiction before. I really, really, really like to observe and just write what's happening around me. And over the past several years, that has been increasingly political. At one time, I wrote a lot about cloth diapers and baby wearing and things like that. And then the world changed and I couldn't do that anymore. So that's the way things have changed. But I love it. I love just listening to you tell that story about empowering your daughter and just standing up and making a change. I just think that is incredible. And I love just hearing empowering stories that women are doing. Do you have another book idea in the works? So I'm actually working on a project right now, a book also lines of resistance, but it's focusing on Kentucky specifically. So it's about civil rights in Kentucky. And I'm writing that right now and really inspiring so far. I actually said to my agent when I started it, I'm like, this is the book that's going to radicalize me. Like hearing about these just badass activists in Kentucky, like Carl and Ann Braden, who made tremendous steps in their own lives and activism and at great risk. I just think is amazing. And so I'm really, really excited to tell those stories 
in this book in particular, I talk a lot about a lot of different issues. And for example, one is poverty. And in some areas of Kentucky, there's really tremendous poverty, especially in coal country and Eastern Kentucky. And in that, you know, the personal is political. And so the struggles of Eastern Kentucky is different for a lot of people than it is in the more urban areas. And so I've been amazed to see organizations like the Poor People's Campaign. And in Louisville-based, we have new organizations like Change Today, Change Tomorrow that are fighting food insecurity and just making a lot of change. And it's just really amazing. So do you know yet your timeline for when you expect the next book to be out? I don't have a definite timeline, but I think it's going to be either this fall or the spring of 2022. That sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to your next project. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Farrah Alexander and with Carrie. Carrie, have you attacked any of those books that you said were in your top books to read for 2021? Uh, no, have not. <laughs> not yet. So have plenty of days left. That's right. See, what happened was I had put some books on reserve from the library. So those books are the ones that I had to get through first before I could get to the books that are my definitely want to read in 2021. One of the books that I had gotten from the library is called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Mm -hmm. Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And the author is Tom Nichols. He is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College Mm -hmm. and the Harvard Extension School. And I follow him on Twitter. This book is basically about the phenomenon where if somebody has studied a concept for years and years and years and years, and this is all they've done, and they know more about this topic than anybody else, somebody on Twitter is going to argue with them about why they're wrong. So, I mean, it could be applicable to really in any instance, I guess, from his perspective, he's looking at this like if you have somebody who's studied this stuff and taught this stuff at some of the the nation's top colleges, he probably knows more than somebody who just studied social studies in high school. But it's also this idea that you know, because we can look up information at our fingertips. I can search up anything. I can watch a YouTube video on how to change something on my toilet, but that does not mean I'm a plumber. That does not mean that I have the knowledge, the tools, the skills, the experience of a plumber. So I think the thing is, he's talking about how even though having Google, having information at our fingertips can be very helpful and democratizing, it has also made some of us insane (laughs) because we think that we know more. And so his book talks about conspiracy theories. He talks about higher education and maybe things that have been happening in higher education that have made this phenomenon occur more. He talks about journalism and he talks about how sometimes experts get things wrong and how When experts get things wrong, the media focuses on 
oh, this one time, this one doctor got this wrong. And that's what everybody remembers, right? But all the thousands of other researchers who agree, well, that's not important. We have this one person who messed up. So it's like most things, it's complex. There's not a simple answer to it. But I think this guy is smart and the book was interesting and he'd been on my list for a while. I marked a passage And I I think it's interesting and, and very on point. At the root of all this is an inability among lay people to understand that experts being wrong on occasion about certain issues is not the same thing as experts being wrong consistently on everything. The fact of the matter is that experts are more often right than wrong, especially on essential matters of fact. And yet the public constantly searches for the loopholes in expert knowledge that will allow them to disregard all expert advice they don't like. So it was a quick book. It's only like 200 pages. And so I think if you're the type of person who is interested in understanding why conspiracy theories have become so much of a phenomenon, I think this is an interesting book. So, well, And it seems like it's so relevant right now oh, with yeah. COVID and some people not wanting to wear masks for strange reasons. Like it's going to keep all the germs inside my mask and make me <laughs> sick or... Right. Well, and I think that's the thing. Even though we can look up information about anything in science we want, a lot of people don't understand the scientific process and how it works. And a lot of the process is, oh, we have this hypothesis. This is how we think something is going to work. And then we test it and we find out, oh, that doesn't work. So then we come up with a new hypothesis. I think in our instantaneous society, I can Google something and look it up and get an answer immediately. And so we think that's how science works, but that's not how science works. So I think there's a disconnect between what we think we know and what we actually know. Did you think any of that was also a lack of comprehensive science education? I don't remember him talking about that. You know, one of the things he did mention is how A lot of the people who do these things are not uneducated people, right? And and that is something that I have found in my own life. Some of the people that are falling for these conspiracy theories, it's not like they didn't graduate from high school. Not only did they graduate from high school, they went to college and some of them have master's degrees. Mm -hmm. And he does talk about that. Yeah. uh, Are there some people? Well, sure. But there's a lot more people who are, quote unquote, educated And that's maybe in some ways the downfall is that because they have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, they think they know as much as because it's not that they're uneducated. So they feel they they have the expertise to argue with their doctor. Right. Mm. Like, well, I've got a master's degree in business administration, so I can go head to head with you, even Mm. though those two things are totally different and provide two different forms of expertise. Anyway, that's my TED Talk. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Well, Farah, what have you been reading? Right now, I've lately been listening to more books than I've been reading, but I just recently picked up A Promised Land by Barack Obama, which has been incredible to listen to because he narrates and it's like a warm blanket right now. (laughs) Just listen to him speak and he's such an incredible writer. And so I'm loving that. It's funny that you say that it's like a warm blanket. Because have you read or listened to Michelle Obama's Becoming? Yes. 
And I I was actually very happy that I got the audio version of that too, because just in the intro, I got chills. It, she just did an incredible job. Because I listened to that one on audio and I felt like you were sitting down at your favorite coffee shop and she was just yeah. talking to you like you were her, her bestie or something. Yes. You know, it was that same sort of... <laughs> cozy comforting feel to it I just think their personalities must come through in that way yes I think they do especially with becoming I felt like I understood Michelle Obama so much more she is a fascinating person and she's just absolutely brilliant but I learned so much about her ambition and what she wanted for the future and how that differed from what became of her really right I I think I was shocked by how much that she had to give up yeah in order to be married to him and to become first lady. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you know, that must be the epitome, you know, to become first lady, but she had to give up a normal life, which is something that she really craved. Absolutely. Huge sacrifice. Well, I'll be anxious to hear what you think about it by the end. I think, isn't it like 800 pages? Well, you don't know how many pages it is because you're listening to it. Okay. How many hours of listening is it? Do you know? I'm not sure. I didn't think it was extraordinarily long, but I could be wrong. Oh, (laughs) I've done that too on audiobooks. <laughs> That's my Achilles heel. Yes. I may be surprised soon. <laughs> we may check back in with her when her new book is published and she's like, I'm still listening. <laughs> well, Amy, what have you been up to? I just finished a book. It's sort of like what you said. It was a book that I had heard about. I put it on request at the library and it came in. So I had to drop everything else that I was reading in order to read this. Uh, The book is called Big Girl, Small Town by Michelle Gollin. And it's a new release. It came out in December. And I was drawn to it because it has been compared to an Irish show that I really like called Dairy Girls. That's on Netflix, I believe. And in that series, there's a group of high school girls in Northern Ireland toward the end of the Troubles, and they're just living their adolescent lives, but with a backdrop of civil unrest going on in their country. It is a really funny show, but it's also tinged with a little bit of sadness because of the war that's going on around them as they are just, you know, going about their business. So in this debut novel by Gallen, we have a protagonist. Her name is Magella O'Neill. She's 27. She works in a fish and chip shop. And she lives with her alcoholic mother in a border town between the Free Ireland and Northern Ireland, right after the peace has come about in the 1990s. She's overweight, and so many of the locals have a mean nickname for her, and they call her Jelly. But this book has a really interesting structure, and the author introduces it to us in this way. So the book is basically a week in the life of Magella, and we follow her through each day. And there's so much sameness to her every day. She makes her mom tea and toast every morning. She goes to the chip shop and work. She sees the regular customers and they say the same phrases to each other every time they come in like a ritual. She eats the same thing after work. But in the foreword, the author writes, Magella kept a list of stuff in her head that she wasn't keen on. Her top 10 hadn't changed in seven years. The full list of things Magella wasn't keen on extended to 97 items with subcategories for each item. The list of things Magella did see the point of was much shorter. Sometimes Magella thought she should condense her whole list of things she wasn't keen on into a single item. Other people. Oh, 
that was the very beginning she, of the book. She sounds like she needs an invitation to my Festivus party. I know she does. <laughs> so each entry of her days has a subheading with the time of day and the thing about that entry that showed a thing that she didn't like or a thing that she did. So for Monday, her first entry is at 4.04 p.m. and it's item 12.2, conversation, rhetorical questions. That's the thing that she's not keen on. And, and so then we learn about Magella and her relationship with her mother and her mother asking her inane, stupid questions. So that's what I'm talking about, the, the structure being kind of interesting. What I found that I really liked about this book is that it's that you get the small picture and you get the big picture. So the small picture in many ways is Magella's day-to-day life, working in a fast food restaurant, dealing with her alcoholic mother, trying to figure out the world around her in a small town where secrets and gossip are all around. And the bigger picture is one of the history of her town and the family in Northern Ireland. So early on, we find out that Magella's granny has had her small house broken into and she's beaten and she eventually dies. And it's such a small town that Magella figures she probably knows who did it. But both her uncle and her dad were involved with the Republican cause against the British. Her uncle Bobby, in fact, died by an explosion. They think it was detonated too early. And he's given a hero's funeral by the local Catholic population. And Magella's dad disappears when she is a young girl. And they all think he'll eventually come back, but he never does. So if you've read or you know anything about the troubles in Northern Ireland, you've surely heard about those who just vanish, which all makes her granny's situation a little suspicious. But this book is darkly funny while also being sad. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So there are two fish and chip shops in town. One is on the Catholic side of town and one is on the prod side. The prod is how they refer to the Protestant side. So Magella's shop on the Catholic side is called Assault and Battered. But it sounds Uh like assault and battery kind of. And the shop on the Protestant side is called a Codfather. So I thought these names are really funny, but they're also vaguely violent, which is sort of a nod to this latent menace that sort of surrounds Magella's life. The author paints a picture of this town as being run down, gray, always slightly greasy or dirty. And in contrast, Magella's favorite thing to watch is reruns of Dallas on TV with the Southern women with their big hair and J.R. Ewing with his blindingly like white teeth. I really enjoy this book, but it is not for every reader. Many parts of it were written in dialect. So if you have trouble with that, this isn't the book for you. I read this on Kindle and I liked being able to look up you know, a lot of the slang and terms that they would use to see what they meant. Like I look up the, uh, the word oxter. Do you know what an oxter is? Mm-mm. It's like your armpit. So like you talk oh. about her oxters and I'm like, what the heck is an oxter? So, you know, with Kindle, you can just click on it and it shows you, you know, what it is. And the whole time I was reading it, I was imagining this Northern Irish accent in my head from Dairy Girls. And in fact, if you listen to the audiobook version, it's narrated by Nicola Coughlin, who stars in Dairy Girls oh, cool. as Claire wow. Devlin. And for those of you who are watching Bridgerton, she plays Penelope Featherton. So actually, I'm going to wait a little while, but I think I might listen to the audiobook of this as well. This book is also quite body and rough. So if you're a sensitive reader, this probably isn't for you. But if you like a darkly funny book about a young woman you want to root for to come into her own, give it a try. It's a really great character study. And the author did grow up in Northern Ireland around the time the troubles ended. So she does have firsthand knowledge of what that time was like. I'll have to add that to my audiobook list. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Farah Alexander her top five.
We are back with Farah Alexander, and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one, you collect political memorabilia and propaganda. Why are you interested in these? And what is the top item you have in your collection? Yeah, I just think it's fascinating to see how people try to influence others. So some of the things I have are pretty odd. I have a poster that I picked up at an antique shop that is a picture of the Pope. And he's kind of in a stance like Uncle Sam and the we want you kind of thing. (laughs) But it says the pill is a (laughs) no-no. Like It's very strange. But I thought it was really funny in a weird way. And I just think it's an interesting look at history and how things evolved and how the conversations that we have that were at one time really divisive have changed. And so I just really like that little glimpse of history. But I think my favorite piece that I'm most proud of is a copy of Barack Obama, The Audacity of Hope, that I had him sign at a rally a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> well, where do you get them? Like the, the poster with the Pope, like, do you get it off of eBay or, or where do you find them? I saw that in an antique shop outside of Las Vegas. And I just thought that was so funny. And that's really where I like to find strange things. Mm-hmm. It's usually antique mm-hmm. shops. They have a lot of political memorabilia a lot of times. Do you ever collect any of the little campaign buttons? I love those. I don't collect them because I am a bit of a collector and my husband is not. He thinks I'm more of a hoarder. But <laughs> I think, is it really hoarding if your stuff is really cool? Like I think I'm a collector and I would like to collect all sorts of things and definitely button, but I'm honing it in a little bit. So question number two, when the Supreme Court lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg this past year, there was some concern in the queer community that their right to get married would be taken away in the near future. That hasn't happened yet. But at that time, you put out an offer to marry any same sex couple at no charge. So I'm assuming that you must be ordained to perform wedding ceremonies. What was the impetus to get this? And what has been the top interesting or positive experience from this? Yeah, I first got ordained when I was in college and I think I was drinking like very cheap vodka with a friend and (laughs) oh my goodness, do you know you can get on Universal Life Church and get ordained in like five minutes and wow, that's wild. And so I did that for the first time and then I didn't do anything with it. Later, as an adult, I got ordained again, completely sober, once again through Universal Life Church, and it took about five minutes. But after that, I did marry several couples, and it was really fun to be a part of someone's day. And, you know, there's actually a lot of freedom in what your wedding ceremony can look like. And legally, you really just have to say, I do. And beyond that, it can be whatever you want. And so I thought that was really fun to write the ceremonies and just make the couple's day really special and focused on them and their love for each other. My favorite experience in doing that was definitely participating in the wedding of one of my best friends, Kara, to her husband, Alex. And it was just simply 
the most fun wedding I have ever been to. It was extremely genuine. You could really just see their love for one another. And they did really, really funny things. Like, you know, a lot of times you have the kind of cheesy unity ceremonies. Yeah. You have a candle, you have sand, whatever. And so they actually made a unity waffle. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just absolutely hilarious to know that was going to happen and then watch all the people looking at the bride and groom like, is that batter? Is that a... (laughs) And then they like took a bite of it. It was hysterical. It's so funny. Also genuine and about their love for each other and it was just appropriate for them that's (laughs) That's awesome all right question number three to go along with this collecting idea you also collect coffee cups so what is one of your top cups and why I really like to pick up cups from places I've traveled And I think one of my favorites that I'm actually drinking from right now is from Temple Bar in Ireland. Mm. When I was in Ireland, I noticed they took tea twice a day. And I thought that was just such a nice little tradition to take part of a couple times a day. And so sometimes when I take tea (laughs) throughout the day, like I am right now, I just think about that trip and I enjoy it. So I was going to ask if you actually drink out of them, but the answer is yes, you do drink out of all of your coffee cups. Well, I honestly cannot possibly drink out of all of them because I have too many, but I do use them. Absolutely. Question number four. So you converted to Judaism as an adult. So what was the process like to convert to Judaism? And what was the top thing that drew you to the faith? Yeah. So I could write a book about this, frankly. <laughs> it was a big you really should. Yeah. I mean, it's, you don't hear a lot about people converting to Judaism. So Judaism is not a mission-based religion like Christianity and others where they seek out converts and they try to bring them into the faith. It's something that just really have the freedom to choose on your own. And then if you do choose that, they want to make sure you are sure because it is a just a big deal. And it was something that I took really, really seriously. And as an overthinker, maybe even too seriously, because it took me about a decade to convert officially. But I grew up in a small Christian church and was raised Christian. My grandmother was the church organist for decades, and my family was extremely involved in the church. And As I got a little bit older, even just as a preteen, probably, I became a little bit disillusioned with the church. And even though I definitely felt a connection to God, I was just not okay with some of the social justice aspects. They weren't welcoming to the queer community. I had a hard time wrapping my head around that. And so I started exploring other faiths and other churches, and nothing really fit. And it wasn't until I was in college, and I took a world religions course, and I started reading about Judaism. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is me. 
And so I just kind of thought about that for a while. And eventually I went to a synagogue for the first time and started going to services. And then I started taking classes and then I just continued to think about it and practice And eventually I was like, you know what, I'm ready. I want to make this official. And it was just over a year ago that I was able to do that. And it was just one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. Did you have somebody in your life who was Jewish, you know, a friend or somebody to introduce you to it a little bit? No. (laughs) So that's like really strange was my first real experience with practicing Jews was when I was personally interested in becoming Jewish, really. You know, I live in a community. I don't know if there's any Jews at all in this particular town. You know, it's just overwhelmingly white and Christian and Republican, you know, we're in the Bible Belt. So I just didn't have that much exposure, really. And then I just started exploring on my own and now it feels like family and being in a synagogue just feels like home to me. And it has been an incredible experience. That's fascinating. All right. Your last question has to do a little bit with collecting. (laughs) Lots of people have done more hiking since COVID started. And while you hike, you also like to get trail patches. So tell us what those are, where you get them, and what the top trail you've hiked is. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of funny. My husband has always been a lot more active than I have been. And he really loves the outdoors and loves to hike. And I have always been indoorsy as I describe it just really (laughs) hasn't been my thing I just really wanted to take charge of my health a little bit more and be able to do things like that like just be able to challenge myself a little bit and so I did it more and I really really enjoyed it so our very first hike that we ever went on, which was a big challenge for me because I'm very indoorsy, was in- I love uh, that term, by the way, indoorsy. <laughs> <laughs> but it was from uh, Smoky Mountain National Park, and it was a little trail we completed. So I was just really trudging along. And at the end, and this was over 10 years ago, my husband got a little bitty patch. It looks like a Girl Scout patch from the visitor center. And he's like, here, you earned this. You did this trail. And I just thought it was really funny and silly, but I loved it. And I kept it. And then over the past year with COVID, we've spent so much more time inside and we've been on more trails. I continued to collect the patches, but we've spent a lot of time in our state parks lately. The state parks have been really awesome because they're within a really, really short driving distance and they're beautiful, just really accessible and amazing. In a year like this one, there needs to be patches for like everything. Like I brush my hair today, (laughs) you know, just affirm yourself for getting through anything that just do it. Yeah, we need that. Well, Farah, it has been so fun chatting with you and learning about your book and, and your writing it. And we look forward to your next work of nonfiction. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. 
Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.